We'll be looking at um, Philippians chapter 2 today. Some of you will notice that it's a passage that we visited recently in August. But my guess is that you have passages, like I have passages, that the Spirit um, regularly and repeatedly um, brings to mind. It's one of those passages that you find yourself going back to again and again and again. Uh, because they are rich and because they bear fruit in your life. This is one of those passages for me. I find myself um, transfixed um, by what I see unfolding in these first several uh, verses of chapter 2 of Philippians. We are in a uh, series that began last week and will continue through the end of this month that I've entitled Living the Dream. It's a series that comes in the wake of celebrating Christmas, the birth of our King. And we started last week um, with a meditation upon the reign of our King, the glorious reign of our King. And one of the things that we noticed is that the glory of that reign is not just future, but it is present as well. Our theme for the series is, goes something like this, that living about... Uh, how are we to live faithfully in his kingdom? After all, we pray weekly, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. But we pray it not so much that it may one day be so, but because of the joy and confidence that by the birth and the life and the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, it has come. It is so. His will is being done upon the earth as it is in heaven. For those skeptics among us, if you want evidence of that fact, look around you. Because we, in fact, are the people at the ends of the earth who dwelt in darkness, upon whom now the light has dawned. And we've been brought in as his children to worship the name of Jesus, the Christ, a first century Jewish rabbi. We are, in fact, the visible evidence of his kingdom come, of his kingdom presence. But here's a really stunning thing. This is the real mind-boggling thing. Not only are we evidence of it, but we are agents of it. It's all just so much to take in. In fact, we resist it, otherwise we run the danger of our hearts and our minds exploding. But here's the thing. To be a citizen of that kingdom, to be a child of that king, is so humiliating. It's just also humiliating, isn't it? To be a citizen of the kingdom, to be a people of the king, is just humiliating. Our passage will help us to understand the expression. Read with me, 
Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is the proclamation of the good news to us, his people. So let's go to him in prayer. And so, Father, we come as your people, your beloved sons and daughters, citizens of your kingdom, because of the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we come to this point in this hour where we open this, your word that we read in our everyday language, which we recognize is, in fact, part of the glory of your great love. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, the third person of the triune God, that you would grant to us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and believe, that we may be shaped by it, for we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. What, if I were to ask you, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ask for a, uh, a show of hands. I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up. Um, but think for just a moment. The most humiliating, most embarrassing time in your life. You can find all kinds of episodes, but one of these, one of, there's a YouTube episode of the, uh, what is it, the love cam or the kiss cam at sporting events or something like that, and the camera's going around during timeouts or whatever, and, and they catch a, uh, a husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is, kissing one another because they're so in love, ah, hearts and everything. And there was this, there's this one where the cam came and focused on the guy, and as he saw himself on the jumbotron, he got up, he turned around, he went down on one knee, and he opened a box, and he said to his girlfriend, will you marry me? In front of, what, 30,000? And she looked at him, and she looked at the jumbotron, and she walked away. You can feel the pain, can't you? Uh-huh. Yeah, my response was, oh, my word. Glad it's not me. Of course, I had to trick my wife into saying yes, but 
was great for me. We all, don't we, have these, these fears that consume us. One of the most common fears, such as I have, is the fear of public speaking. There's a reason that I hold the pulpit like this every Sunday for 15 years. In fact, I don't, know, I don't know what the next guy will think of when he sees all the sweat stains here on the corner. There is a church in our presbytery whose pulpit has this middle panel gone. Isn't that crazy? Who designed that? You have to be a very confident man to preach behind such a pulpit. I personally live, and some of you have noted this, although you have graciously not said anything about it, but I live in constant fear that I have something in my nose. (laughs) It's true. So, like, I mean, it becomes like a distracting thing when I'm having conversation. So if you see me doing that, just be gracious and pray for me. We all have these things as we get into these situations. We fear of doubt. Will I say the right thing? Will I know the right thing? Will I be exposed as not knowing these things? Fear of forgetting. One of my great fears is forgetting names. So like, you know, my wife Mary over there, um, you know, she understands that. For those of you who are visiting with us today, my wife's name is Mako. We live in fear. What is the fear that we live in? We live in the fear of being exposed, of being humiliated of not being as smart as we want people to think we are, of not being as good-looking as we want people to believe we are, as not being as skilled, whatever it is. We live in fear of being humiliated, of being exposed, of of being stripped of what little dignity or glory we may actually have, or more likely, imagine ourselves to have. And so it's no surprise that we find ourselves wanting to sidestep or stop short of the fullness of God's joy that he has granted to us in Jesus Christ. It's no surprise that we find ourselves wanting to sidestep or stop short of much of the Christian life because to be a follower of Jesus Christ is humiliating. It is to publicly and joyfully bear and participate in the shame of Jesus Christ. The humiliation of Jesus Christ. We don't want to serve in this capacity or that capacity. Well, because my lack of skill or my lack of ability will become known and visible to the watching world. We don't want to welcome people into our homes, into our lives, because, well, who knows what they might see. More importantly, what they might think and say to others about what they see. 
When I was growing up, for example, I always thought that the practice of a warm welcome and embrace of a, of a drop-in visitor was, Oh my word, somebody's here! Everybody, close the doors! Oh, they're friends. What might people think? What might people say? about what they see in our lives absolutely terrifies us. But here's the thing. Following Jesus is unavoidably humiliating. In fact, that's the design. That's the intent. That's the glory. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a people of the King is to be stripped of what little glory we imagine ourselves to have and to be clothed with the glory of Jesus. Let me say it again. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a citizen of in the kingdom of Jesus, is to be stripped of what little glory we imagine ourselves to have in order that we might be clothed with the glory of Jesus himself. Look how Paul opens it. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy for the great, rich, and abounding blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ, comfort and courage and participation, communion in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. Those are some of the things that we celebrate, aren't they? as we celebrate our life together in Christ, the comfort that is there, the courage that is there, the communion in the spirit with one another that is there, the affection and the sympathy that is there. So it's fascinating that Paul starts out saying, so if there is any of that, what are you talking about? If there is any of that, if what you have, comfort, courage, participation, communion in the spirit, affection, if that is genuinely gospel, comfort, courage, communion, and affection, then, he goes on to say, there's an understand, um, understood then there in verse 2, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. It's a fascinating expression. This always fascinated me. Paul, the apostle, is now writing to the Philippians. He said, if this is true about you, complete my joy. What does he mean, my joy? Why, after all, would we care about Paul's joy? And after all, if it's Paul's joy, what does that have to do with us? After all, Paul's been dead for quite some time, a couple years at least. Well, because the joy that he is calling my joy is the joy 
of Christ. The joy of Christ that now in Christ has been bequeathed to him, has been granted to him. And so in in that sense, he can call it my joy. It is not a joy that originates in Paul. It is not a joy that he possesses in in that possessive sense. But it is a joy that nonetheless is a part of who he is that has been granted to him, that overflows to him from Jesus Christ. It is the joy of Christ. Remember, Christ who for the joy set before him endured the shame of the cross. That's the joy that is in view here. Some of you hear me refer to it at communion on occasion. And so Paul is saying, let my joy, let this joy that I enjoy be multiplied and magnified by other lives and voices being added to the celebration. That's what he has in view here. Grow it. Multiply it. Make my joy complete. There is really little more thrilling, in my personal opinion, than hearing someone tell the story of how they were captivated and changed by the power of the gospel. Periodically in this congregation, we have times where we share testimony. And this is the reason. Because in sharing testimony, we amplify, we magnify, we multiply one another's joy. Not our personal joy, but we glorify the joy of Jesus Christ when we share testimony of that. And there is little more heartbreaking than to meet someone for whom the thrill and the wonder of this gospel has grown cold and distant. That is the joy that Paul is referring to, the joy of all things made new. And he is saying, multiply and perfect the joy that I have in Christ by cultivating and manifesting the mind of Christ. We'll get to that in just a moment. Because it's interesting. Is there something lacking in Christ? Isn't that interesting? In what way can you complete what is the perfect joy of Christ? Hmm. The word there is the word for fulfill. Full to overflowing. That is translated in the ESV as complete. Some of your Bibles actually may read perfect. It's the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not. I have come to complete the law or fulfill the law. Which suggests that there is something not quite completed or perfected about a Christian life that merely rests in the courage and the comfort and the communion and the affection of the gospel. There is something not yet fulfilled. It seems that in Paul's mind, these blessings of the gospel have an intended design, an intended purpose 
that they are blessings to equip us for something beyond us. And sure enough, we see that it is the cult cultivation of the same mind, being of the same mind, the same love, in full accord and of one mind. Full harmony, perfectly synchronized. In short, a shared and harmonized feelings, thoughts, words, and deeds. Shared and harmonized vision, values, and vocabulary. Shared and harmonized passions and priorities and practices. What is this one mind? He says it right after that. Have this mind, verse 5, among yourselves. Some of your translations read, in yourselves. But Paul is referring to the congregational life in Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves, which is y'all's already in Christ. And then he goes on to describe the mind of the triune God that we see through Jesus Christ. Look with me. Who... And this is how he, how he manifests this mind. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on the cross. So verses 6 through 8 is what John Calvin refers to as the humiliation of Christ. Verses 9 through 11, Calvin refers to as the exaltation of Christ and reads this way, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one mind that Paul is exhorting the Philippians to is none other than the mind of Christ. The glory of God, the glory of the triune God made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice this. The glory of God, the glory of God is made visible in not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. Isn't that a stunning thing? But, further, willingly, and we know from elsewhere in this scripture, joyfully setting it aside. But moreover, Emptying himself, that expression right there has been cause for the writing of many, many volumes. And I will encourage you to go and read those volumes. We won't get into it here. But the surface of it is sufficient. There is something about what Christ did that Paul can describe as emptying of himself. We might think of it as human beings in terms of emptying ourselves of our own agendas and of our own pride. 
coming in the form of a servant in the likeness of man. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have dreams about what you would like to be when you grow up? And I know I'm talking to a a crowd that has like tiny ones as well as those of us who are older. But we all have dreams about what we're going to be when we grow up because none of us have gotten there. So what is a dream that you have? President of the United States? (laughs) Probably not anymore. A CEO? A race car driver? A star basketball player? What is it? What is a dream that you have, or a dream even that you had? How many of you dreamt, have dreamt, have aspired to become a snail? At least they have cool shells. How many of you have aspired to be a slug? Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be a slug. Can I please? Well, you got to go to college for that. (laughs) We don't aspire to those things. But notice, by comparison, this is what's happening. The creator of all things, you and me, as we were just reminded in the psalm reading earlier, you and me, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, that one came to be like us in our form, taking on our flesh. He said, Daddy, I want to be a slug. Good, son. That's glorious. But not only so, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the most humiliating death, That could have been imagined, death upon the cross. This you have to understand. Look at the text. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. An active participation. He is not a victim here. He is a willing participant in this thing. And a joyful participant in this thing. So, verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And so we get that. We get that. Wow, that's pretty amazing. What a cool God that even though he was so glorious, he came to love little old me, little old you, yes, and little old Flintstone. Rob, you have to use it. Two things I want you to observe about the glory of the triune God here. First, look at verse 6. Most of your translations have it this way. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. Though he was, as one word. And the question that a translator has to ask is, how is that particular 
word being used. And there's a number of ways that it can be used, that particular form of that verb to be. The way it is translated in most of our texts and is appropriate is though, though he was. Because from our perspective, glory and humiliation are opposites. Glory is the absence of humiliation. Humiliation is the absence of glory. And so the God of all glory, even though he was the God of all glory, yet he came in the form of a servant. Though is called the concessive use. Though he was the God of all glory quite natural to read this as something exceptional, something that is out of the ordinary, something that is extrinsic to the glory of God, and yet something that he does. But there is a second way to translate it, which upon reflection gets to the deeper structure of this passage. It's the causative. Who because he was in the form of God. It can also be translated as causative because he was God. Now on that reading, what Paul is telling us is the real glory of the triune God's great love is that he accommodates himself, he humbles himself, he comes and he kneels down to speak to us on our level, eye to eye, what John Calvin describes as lisping to us. Because that is the glory of our triune God. That is the mind-boggling, scandalous glory of the triune God's great love. The bleeding heart, the delight of his heart is to kneel down and to take our, take our chins in his hand and cause us to look at him and hear him say, you are my beloved son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. Isn't that stunning? This is not an exception to the glory of God. This is the heartbeat of the glory of God that Paul is describing here. We find it similarly, a similar um, kind of translation decision happening in verse 9. Verse 9, the standard translation is, therefore God has highly exalted him. And our common reading, our conventional reading, goes something like this. Because Jesus did that, he earned the crown. But there's another way and more appropriate way, in my opinion, to translate that therefore. And it's this way. Accordingly. We have that word actually occurring earlier, being in full accord and of one mind. But here, accordingly. What is going on there? Because Jesus entered into and perfectly fulfilled the glory of God's great love, he also enters into the fullness of God's glory. It isn't that Christ earns the name, but that all of his actions are perfectly fitting to the name. 
He, he, it's as though he proves himself to be the one. Quite contrary to the scandal of Christ's humiliation, according to which the Pharisees were so offended and scandalized because Jesus actually hung out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. The holiness and glory of God is that he delights to dwell with shame-saturated sinners such as you and me. What a strange God is that? And so, when we understand that, we come back and we hear Paul again saying, complete my joy, which remembers the joy of Christ, by being of the same mind with Christ, of being of the same love of Christ, of being in accord with Christ, having one mind, the mind of Christ. The comfort, the courage, the communion, the affections of the gospel, you see, are intended to compel us and to equip us to enter into and participate with Christ in the glory of the triune God's love. Isn't that stunning? I haven't been invited into the halls of the president, but I've been invited into the halls of the cosmic king, Jesus Christ, because that is his glory. These, this courage and this comfort and this communion and this affection are designed to compel us to participate with Jesus in the glory of the triune God's great love is downright humiliating. To willingly and joyfully sacrifice my glory or my imagined glory, my dignity or my imagined dignity, my rights in order to participate with Christ in the joys of glorious and loving humiliation so that others might be drawn into and therefore our joy multiplies and expands full to overflowing. You see, if we take the comfort and the courage and the communion and the affections of the gospel that are so generously poured upon us in Jesus Christ and then hoard them and leave it at that, then in fact, we are missing the real joy of the gospel and more, robbing God of his glory and Christ of his honor. And this is why the poor we will always have with us. In our circles, we tend to hear that and say, oh yeah, those poor. But the fact is that when we get the glory of the triune God's delight to dwell with the least, the lost, and the lonely, we, get to under we begin to understand that we are the poor. The reason we have the poor always with us is because in our presumed self-glory, there are always those, no matter where you are in the socioeconomic chain, that we disdain and look down upon. Poor slob. 
And so when we encounter those who actually are or who we imagine to be poor, whether financially or socially, educationally, nationally, racially, whatever, we ought to be hearing the invitation of Christ in all his glory. Hey, want to participate in the love of the triune God? Love the poor. Hey, you want to participate in the love of the triune God? Serve your enemy. Serve, honor, respect. Consider one another as more significant than yourself. Then the joy of your gospel hope will begin to grow more and more to perfect completion. So brothers and sisters, in the coming year and beyond, when an elder exhorts you to love one another, he is not being unkind. He is inviting you to more fully participate in the glory of the triune God's love. When an elder exhorts you to confess your sins, whether in the context of public worship or privately one-on-one, -on -one, they're not seeking to burden you with guilt and shame. They are rather inviting you to participate with Christ in the glorious humiliation of the triune God's great love. By laying aside what we imagine to be our glory, what we imagine to be our security, what we imagine to be our successes, and naming it for what it is, and esteeming others as more significant. When a deacon asks you to serve in one capacity or another, he is not determined that you, he has not determined that you are some glorious servant with amazing skills that must be showcased before all the watching world, which may or may not be the case. He is rather, he is not seeking to burden you with guilt and shame, though it is likely at the moment that you may feel that. He is rather inviting you to more intentionally more fully, more completely, more perfectly participate in the love of Christ, the glory of which is to esteem others as more significant and worthy of our service. When you're invited to serve on a committee, you're not invited, being invited to bring your great wisdom to bear so that great things may be accomplished for God. You are being invited to learn how to love one another around that table. How to lay aside your glory or your imagined glory and to consider each person around that table in that room as more significant than yourself. And so, actually complete your joy and participate in the glorious love of the triune God. To participate in the glorious humiliation of the triune God's love. To intentionally work to complete the joy of the, gospel, of the gospel love by esteeming others as more significant than ourselves. Especially those that we naturally esteem as the least, the lost, and the lonely, and even our enemies. That is what it means to be a people of the king. That is why it's so humiliating. And that's why it's so glorious. It's the humiliating glory of the king's abounding love. This is how he has designed his world. 
It's the glory. It's the glory offering child of this king. It is the glory of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. It's the glory of being a child of the king. So, Father, we come and we ask that you would indeed grant us the courage and the strength, as Paul prays in Ephesians, to participate with Christ in the humiliation of his great love that we may know the joy and the glory of being children of the King in a world desperately in need to know that you are the God who comes, the God who saves, the God who delights. We come and we ask these things as your children in Jesus. Amen.